Welcome to a podcast on marketing. I'm your host, Jordan Ogren, and this is a podcast where we talk about marketing. The first question, who are you and what do you do? My name is Miles Madden. Uh, first off, I got to say, I love your podcast voice. You have the perfect <laughs> podcast voice. So this is, uh, I'm very well, envious. First. Um, <laughs> so like I said, Miles Madden, I'm a performance marketing manager at Refine Labs. Um, we've been making a lot of noise on LinkedIn. I'm sure many of you have heard of Chris Walker, at least seen him on there. He's a crazy guy talking about B2B marketing. Um, so that's the company that I'm working for uh, and loving it so far. So that's who I am. That's uh, what we're doing. We're focused on B2B SaaS companies. Um, awesome. So yeah. Awesome. So what is something lately uh, you've been obsessed with or for a while that you've been obsessed with in the marketing business realm? Oh man, uh, marketing and business is my passion. So I get obsessed with many things. <laughs> um, just, I kind of bucket them because I, I get obsessed with a few different things and tackle them all at the same time. So um, anything tactical. And when I, when I talk about mar marketing execution or tactics, I'm talking about Google ads, Google analytics, Google tag manager. Um, so that's one bucket I'm always listening to podcasts, dedicated to execution on those, courses, blogs, uh, the whole nine yards. Um, the next area, marketing psychology, marketing history. Um, we're humans. We need to know how to talk to humans and learn from what's been done in the past. So that's, that's another obsession. But um, lately, I'd say the biggest obsession that, I, that the most amount um, of time goes to is this new model of B2B marketing, especially for SaaS. Mm. That's why I joined Refine Labs and Chris Walker, because that's what they're doing. They're changing the game. Um, it's much more buyer centric. So tailored to someone as a customer in a person rather than um, being uh, uh, customer centric or excuse me, um, more focused on internal processes and, and the business. Um, so I, yeah, that's probably my biggest obsession right now. Yeah, no, that's good. I like how you broke it into buckets. So do you think those two other buckets that were the first two you listed all stem from this new way of doing B2B marketing? One of them, obviously the tactics, how do we run Google ads, LinkedIn ads for this new way? And then the maybe theoretical psychology you said is how do we, this new way, but obviously, as you said, we're humans, we're thinking the same way as we did in caveman age, like how do we now do marketing? Do you say a lot of it stems from that new way of BB SaaS marketing that kind of creates this or have you always been obsessed for like a while, like since a little leeward? Uh... That's, a, that's a, really good, a really good question. Um, I've always been obsessed with the others. Awesome. So um, this, new, this new model sets the strategy for businesses, their go-to-market, their demand generation strategy. Um, as far as the tactics and marketing psychology, I mean, it's pretty universal. So um, the, this new B2B SaaS model is, it's going to have specific tactics to it, but you could easily be in e-commerce and you still need to know how to use Google Analytics. You still need to know how to use Facebook ads. Um, and you still need to know how people communicate with each other and how they make decisions and what emotionally pulls them. Um, so those are pretty universal. I, I, it helps a lot with, with B2B SaaS, but I think it's 
you can use it no matter what type of marketing yeah, you're doing. standalone things to obsess over definitely so this is a simple question and i always enjoy to see the different answers that come from it but how do you define marketing like what is the job that marketing should get done you guys have all heard this answer but uh, there's there's nuances to it that i want to point out so of course it's delivering the right message to the right person at the right time it's very simple um at the right time though that is never really defined. So a lot of people, when they hear the right time, they think of someone's ready to buy your solution. So get in front of the right person at the right time when they're ready to buy. I do not think that's the best strategy. When I say the right time, I mean what someone's experiencing throughout their day. So um, for instance, Facebook ads. Like that is a good area to advertise to someone, but to do it naturally. So deliver uh, education, entertainment in platform. Um, don't just blast something in front of someone. Uh, make it natural to the platform and provide that value. What's not a right time is sending someone a text message. If you're a B2B company, like sign up for my demo. I think that's very intrusive um, and that's not the right time. So uh, there's there's specifics to the right time that I think aren't talked about enough, but marketing is really simple. Um, just like I said, delivering right person, right place, right time, and making sure that it's artful and educational and entertaining. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Actually, on one of the previous episodes, hopefully it's previous, I don't know where this one will land, um, but I said that as well, that I really think, and I, I heard someone say that before, and I thought it was like right message, right person, right medium, and then now like right time is another one that I'm kind of adding to the framework of that. But that is definitely the the basic or the very foundational way to think about everything needs to almost build off that. Like you said, there's nuances to it, but without that understanding, it's quite difficult, I think, to do good marketing. And that leads me to a question is how do you define or create the dichotomy between good marketing and bad marketing? You could obviously rebuttal it and say, you know, it's all subjective to the perceiver, but like we're marketing, you know, gurus, people like we, we see it all the time. And I think quickly I can make judgments. Ooh, that's good. Ooh, that's bad. How do you judge content or not just content marketing as good, good marketing, bad marketing? Yeah, you said something really key there. Um, it is subjective to the user. And so I, I, that's something that I've done in my past where I'll look at, uh, some message that a company provided um, or marketed or some advertisement that they marketed. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's, that doesn't hit right. That's not good. I, I don't think it's good for these reasons, but I have to remember I'm not the target audience. Um, so that's good marketing, I think starts with deep customer insights. And so I don't mean to parrot Chris Walker, but it's so fundamental to marketing. Like you need to understand the people you're talking to and that's good marketing. Um, knowing who the person is, just not professionally. And of course I'm speaking on behalf of B2B cause that's, that's my territory, um, but them as a person. And so when you understand someone outside of the vacuum of professional life and business and open up to them as a person, um, that's good marketing. That's good marketing. It speaks to them, um, both as a professional and as a human. Um, bad marketing is just cookie cutter, uh, 
and even know how to define <laughs> bad marketing because it's so subjective. Yeah. But I think it comes back to those. Instances. Yeah. Well, if you use just the alternative of your good marketing definition, obviously be product or company focus, not customer focus. Hey, we have a new update without tying it all of like why you should care. But another thing you said that just popped out to me that continually comes out in some of these interviews is, you know, the demographics are important. We're targeting X, you know, position or whatever, but there really is a, I think a push towards if there wasn't always towards the psychographics, like what's this person thinking, desires, what do they want to do? And kind of starting to figure more of that out. I think that goes for B2B and B2C like Peloton and, seg or like a different bike sell to similar demographics but they sell to very different uh kind of like what people believe like peloton i believe something very different than if i buy the walmart kind of brand of bike both of them get the job done quote unquote so i, I really like that that good marketing stems from that customer kind of focus ak having conversations really listening and not just saying this is who i am targeting but let them kind of speak to you of who who they are in a sense, who gravitates most towards a product. You said that that is perfect. That is spot on. You said something really interesting. You talked about the psychographic profile and that is something in my opinion, not mm. talked about enough. And it, it not only helps you in acquiring new customers, but the uh, loyalty of those customers. And then of course they're going to spread word of mouth, which I believe is the most powerful uh, way to acquire business word of mouth. Um, if you can find a way to get the right psychographic profile and target those people and acquire them as your customers, like that is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the example that I like to use, let's say you have a cutting edge technology, some augmented reality solution, the psychographic profile you want to find, you can have the firmographic fit and all that, but you want someone that is an early adopter or um, the crossing the chasm by yeah, Geoffrey yeah. Moore. I forget what the uh, that first part of the, the uh, bell curve is, but um, that's someone that really wants to be at the cutting edge of technology. So they're gonna be the perfect customer for you because psychologically they wanna be on the cutting edge. They're gonna be very loyal to your company, probably gonna spend the most amount of money and tell the most amount of people. Um, so that's a very, very important part. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I like that. And just bringing that book up, that was a huge book uh, for me, Crossing the Chasm. I'm dipping into the company I work for is dipping into the kind of SaaS space. So it was an early book. And I think that's so key is a lot of times I feel if we don't have the, the psychographics well, we can be sometimes trying to sell steak to vegetarians. Like they kind of line up as, hey, it's a 45-year-old ex, but like we don't really know, like actually they're vegetarian. So this meat product, like, so sometimes I think the more, because if someone that's like totally against tech or just hates kind of this new future of tech, it doesn't matter if they fit everything else that you built. Like it, they're just going to be very reluctant. You're going to have to sell them super hard. And to your point, it actually helps retain the better customers when you have a better understanding of it. Because the people who think like you are like, that's going to be a better customer in the long run than someone who likes your product when it brings them value, but they actually don't believe in some of the same things you believe in, which leads me to a question that I really like to ask is what is a belief you have? One of your strongest held beliefs about marketing, a hill you're willing to die on that maybe, maybe others are too, but you kind of, you for sure own that hill. Everything that you produce in marketing does not have to be a winner. 
And as performance marketers and marketers that, especially in the modern day where we have so much data, data is endless. Like we, especially with the internet of things and where our world's trending, we're gonna have data on literally every single point of our life. Um, and with that, because we have so much data, so many marketers are A-B testing everything or you know, they launch five ads and they need to find the winner. And that's not how I view marketing because it's everything is a piece in the puzzle, right? If we just have a winner and continually iterate on that winner, then it's solely analytical and there's no art to it. And so, for instance, if you are running an ad and you have an ad that has very high click-through rate and it's talking about one uh, specific message, and then you have another that has a very low click-through rate and it's talking on, talking on another specific message, the one with the high click-through rate is resonating with the masses, which is good, but that one with the low click-through rate could have been a huge unlock for one or two people, and that could have pushed them to become a customer. And so we need to continuously push out uh, different marketing messages and be artful in what we do, and not be so hyper-focused on what's winning and killing the, the low performers because they have a place. Um, and like I said, it's, it's telling that story and the best analogy that I can use is if you're reading a book, let's say there's one chapter in that book that is really good, you need the other chapters. Chapter two may not be very good, but you need that to tell that story. If you cut out chapter two, that could be very mm -hmm. devastating, the entire story. You don't always have to optimize for the winner. We need to tell the story and be dedicated to that process. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think if, if correct me if I'm wrong, does that come from a, maybe a over prioritization of data that, hey, this winner is, you know, by data means it's, it's doing the best. So let's just keep this going. And all these others by data's means aren't. So let's cut these low fruit where you're kind of speaking that maybe there's, there's something else you should be looking at and not totally sync or fly with the data is that like is it kind of like because i guess the question i have is what inhibits people from doing what you're saying like what gets in the way from not cutting those quote-unquote losers or the, the ones that kind of do provide different value like you said the obsession with data and so starting there and i'll answer your the, the later question but um we as marketers, because we have all this data, we just need to continue to prove what's working. And the only, they, the only easy way we can do that is with quantitative data. But a great, another great example that we like to use, let's say I go on LinkedIn and I post a LinkedIn post about working hard. I'm probably gonna get a bunch of likes and engagement on that because it's so broad and so general and resonates with so many people that I'm gonna get a bunch of engagement. But that doesn't actually push uh if if we're using me as a business that wouldn't push my business forward if if i was a marketing company it's my post that's dedicated to b2b SaaS companies that's talking about how to win on google ads and the specific strategy the niche and target audience is significantly smaller but the likes and engagements that i get are probably going to be directors of demand generation for SaaS companies um I'll probably get messages through LinkedIn, through DMs being like, hey, this was really helpful. And that's what's gonna push my company forward. But it's so tough to get the quantitative data around that. 
And because we can't do that, marketers are like, that ah, doesn't work or I can't, I can't measure it. So I might as well play it safe and take this other route. Um, and safe, in my opinion, is typically the risky mm. route if you really want to uh, yeah. have success. Yeah. Definitely. No, that's good. Yeah. It's kind of a change of mindset, right? Where sometimes picking the safe route does result in long-term less or loss rather than, you know, always experimenting. I, this will be a super probably off uh, tangent story, but there's like this story about ants, how there's like some ants that know where the food are and they constantly send, you know, the largest stream of ants there, but there's always these ants that are going off to find the new or the next in a sense you know, stream of food. And then once they find mm -hmm. it and it's, you know, reliable, then they send more down that way. And that could be kind of something too in this is that, you know, if you have one way that you're doing things, so if LinkedIn, you know, text posts are doing great, like it doesn't help or doesn't hurt to, you know, eventually try like maybe video get less views, which Chris has talked a lot about, but it'll go deeper with the people who view, um, which just goes to your point about the hustling post where maybe you should actually be making less liked posts, mm -hmm. but more targeted and you never know that if you just keep saying, let's go with the winner, let's go with the winner and never, you know, try losers or even, you know, kind of experiment like you're talking about art, really trying to be more artistic in our marketing rather than meticulous with data where we don't ever try things that uh, don't line up with the data. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. What is something, and this could have been already discussed, but like what is something other than maybe that hill that you disagree with marketers on or you get into some quarrels where you see it one way and a lot of others see it another way and you think obviously your way is correct? Um, man, I think I... I think we kind of touched that. Do you mind rephrasing the question? Because I don't think I'm following completely. Well, yeah, just like, so like something I disagree with many marketers is that, you know, you don't need to build brand. I believe brand's important. Got so it. like, what is something you believe that, and obviously like there's, there's people who believe everything in the world, but you constantly kind of run into people with this stance or, you know, with it. And you're like, oh, I disagree with you on this topic or this aspect. Yes, this is so good. Um, this one's a little specific, but the power of email addresses. Hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is marketers are always trying to acquire an email address. Like that is, it comes down to the age old marketers are, their success is defined by MQLs and just acquiring leads. Um, whether they're conscious of it or not, marketers are always trying to get an email address. And I have shifted my mindset on that. Whatever I, whatever I do, like I'm not trying to collect the lead. And that's, mm. that's what email address, that's what I'm referring to is um, collecting leads. So, you know, Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, these do not have to be lead gen platforms or we do not need to acquire email addresses just to put them in an automation. Like we need to be focused more on the actual marketing hmm. um, and educating people and entertaining people. Um, so that's one thing. I, I think it's an antiquated thought process. That's what marketing was 10 years ago. Um, so that's that's the big thing is, is we do not need to center <laughs> our efforts around collecting this data point. Sure, sure. Yeah, I like that. I mean, obviously, what comes to my mind quickly is that that's measurable. You can't totally measure uh, how impactful a video is, but you can definitely run to the manager or to someone and say, hey, we got 
55 email addresses yet most of them are either you know playboybunny at gmail.com or just whatever and it's like well they're not going to do anything for our actual uh, marketing do you what do you feel about the the importance of email addresses in the sense of like there's this huge push around you know marketing content marketing around hey you need to build on owned property in the sense of rather than doing tons of stuff on LinkedIn Facebook all these places gaining email addresses then to repeatedly send them good content is the way to kind of build an audience I'm guessing you don't disagree or like your point is more on when we're trying to have marketing objectives or whatever email shouldn't be one of those it should be other things that are more important or do you also disagree that like you don't need email addresses, you don't need kind of an e a newsletter email to kind of build an audience and you can do it in other uh, streams? That's a really good question. I definitely see the value in email. So I'm not saying it doesn't work. There's, there's two or three emails that I'm subscribed to that I read every week, but it's because they've built authority somewhere else or through word of mouth. A friend told me about it. So, um, for instance, Dave Gerhardt, DGMG. Um, he, I'm part of, I'm drawing a blank on the subscriber list. I think it was when he was at Drift. Hmm. Um, yeah, it was Drift. They have a really good weekly newsletter. Yeah. Um, but it was because they built a really good brand on social media. And so repeatedly following them, they built their authority and expertise on so social media, both him and the founder, who's, I believe, David Cancel. Um, and so when they were like, Hey, we're delivering weekly value in your inbox every week, I signed up. They yeah. already had stake. Sure. At me. Right. So that's, that's one route. So if you build your authority on social media, um, another one, I follow Paramill. They're a weekly newsletter around the best ads and they Ooh. do a really good job at it. Um, I don't know how my friend found out about them. Maybe it was through social media, but she told me about it and it provides a ton of value. I don't have to click to a landing page. It provides value right inside the email and I love it. I'm mm. talking to you about it right now. <laughs> so um, it's really defining what you want your email strategy to be. I think it works best at um, establishing some authority and expertise on social media because you can get such high reach. Mm. Um, and then that, the strategy from there, of course, is to eventually open up that email newsletter, weekly newsletter stream and collect those email addresses. Um, so I def it's definitely a play, but I don't think it's the first, uh, I don't think it should be your main strategy, the first mm -hmm. thing you run to. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And we could be, you know, talking about oranges and pears here, just in the sense of like, one is a strategy to get email addresses. A different is kind of saying, hey, this is a best content strategy to play rather than building on you know, kind of rented property. But even in your answer, you're still kind of backing up that point where, you know, you got to go on social media, you got to deliver content without worrying about getting any emails. And then, you know, eventually through the value you've given through the connection you've developed, you will find out or seek out, hey, do they have another place an email I can rather than always trying to like blast your sign up or trying to get people to sign up mm -hmm. um, could be more effective just to bring the value on social media or any of these uh, kind of rented properties. You know, that's a it's a good take and kind of a nice wrap from your, your kind of point you disagree with. What is a big failure, a big mistake you've made in your career, whether in marketing business that has obviously now helped you. You kind of look back and you say, I'm glad that went wrong. 
Yeah, biggest failure was everything that I'm preaching not to do, I did for probably three years. And I was married to it. And that is what I did. I was trying to figure out the most creative ways to capture an email address. I wasn't mm -hmm. trying to figure out the most creative ways to educate my audience. Um, and I did that for three years and I learned from it. And to your point, I would go in the CRM and look at all the email addresses and Playboy Bunny was <laughs> definitely there, right? And yeah. so um, it led to, I completely understand it because especially I was working for an agency and so you have to validate that you're providing value. And one of the easiest ways is quantitatively and that's how you get buy-in. Hey, we have 20% more leads this quarter. Everyone gets excited and, and that's a big thing. Um, and so that's what I was doing. I was figuring out creative ways to acquire leads and then going to leadership and being like, hey, we got 25% more leads. But it wasn't until um, we shifted our execution to be aligned with revenue. And this, uh, this is a super interesting thing. I was still reporting on revenue at that time. I was reporting both on leads. Hey, we acquired 25% more email addresses. I was reporting on revenue as well, but nothing I did aligned with actually trying to grow that revenue. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until I started going through all these email addresses and seeing that none of these converted into a closed deal one, or if they were, the conversion rate was so minuscule that it didn't make sense. Um, that, that was really helpful. Um, the toughest part is communicating that to leadership and getting the buy-in. Um, so communication is the biggest part. It's really hard to convince people to change their mindset. Um, mm -hmm. So if you have the runway to do it, uh, you better sharpen your communication skills. <laughs> but some people are not going to change, and that's yeah. uh, no fault to them. You can win several different ways, but what we found is that it's not the most efficient. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's good. You have to play the old game for a bit to understand and appreciate the new game or kind of like you said, have your maybe your feet deep in the sand on certain things that now you've changed your mind on. And I feel for me, that helps me just get into a relearning mindset all the time that, hey, what worked last week, yesterday, two years ago, a year ago, like isn't going to work tomorrow or the, the future. So how can I always be learning, always be kind of growing? And I feel the more I've shifted into this new way of doing a lot of things in marketing, I just, that's a mindset now I have is like, there's nothing like, there's no strategy works for everybody and really always being open to figuring out um, kind of what's working now rather than being married to what worked yesterday. And, and even not even worked, just we thought it worked um, and never changing the mind. So that gets me into a question that I think you're very well positioned to answer is how do you define the difference between demand generation and lead generation? You use kind of both terms throughout this, uh, this podcast. And for me, especially like just help me understand the, the difference between the two as clear as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, usually marketers who are focused on lead generation, they're focused on acquiring leads through every channel. Um, and that's kind of the end of the story. <laughs> Right? You acquire leads, you have a bunch of MQLs, uh, and your day's over. Um, and when you focus every channel on lead generation, which I just told you guys, I this is what I did. Mm -hmm. Like I learned from this, and I'm realizing that the grass is definitely greener <laughs> on the demand generation side. Um, 
and yeah, it's it's just every every action, every marketing effort, you're focused on acquiring that lead, which is not impactful at all, and it's not buyer centric at all. So demand generation um, is creating demand for your target audience and showing them that there is a solution, why it helps them, and providing value. Um, and, and through that, uh, through providing value to people and helping them solve their problems and actually being a partner through their journey rather than uh, kind of hammering them on the head with marketing, uh, you'll, you'll find the results are 10x mm. incredible yeah it works so much better can you give an example for for both obviously you talked a lot about like collecting email addresses for lead gen but what's like a very clear example that i will be able to kind of picture in my mind of okay this is lead generation and then this is demand generation do you have kind of examples you could pull out of your hat for both of those yeah yeah super easy one um we'll, we'll uh we we'll use linkedin as an example linkedin ads um, I love LinkedIn ads, so this is, uh, I think a lot of people use it, so this should be the one that resonates most. So if you're a lead generation marketer and you're running LinkedIn ads, you're going to run website conversion campaigns or lead gen campaigns. And so what that means is as a user, you'll see an ad that says request demo right in the platform. Or you click on that button and it will pull up a form either on the landing page or in platform. But the main action or the main value is trying to get someone to either download your ebook, get on a demo call, um, and it's very obvious. They're just trying to collect your data. On the flip side, demand generation, um, we solely use reach campaigns. We're not focused on acquiring any type of data on a user. What we're focused on is providing value to the creative, which is the most important part. Um, and then through the supplementary details, the ad, the primary text, the headline, um, we're not trying to drive people to our website. Nobody's ever logged into LinkedIn to go to another website or fill out a form. We're just trying to entertain and educate them while they're scrolling through the feed. Hmm. Um, you can't calculate a direct ROI on that because there's no tracking. So that's a, obviously another discussion, but, mm -hmm. um, the method of reporting and measurement is significantly different hmm. um, and the, the strategy to it is significantly different. And yeah. that's probably my best example. Yeah, that's a good example because for, for me, I was maybe thinking they're totally different actions. Like one is running an ad, one is doing a community, you know, Zoom call where you have people come on where obviously you're not, you know, trying to lead gen in that, but you're more or less building demand of like, hey, there's a new way of X or B. But your example was really helpful to see how it can be a similar thing, but as you just said, it's all about the strategy, the reasoning of like what we're doing it for that kind of differentiates it between lead gen, demand gen. That, that's very helpful. That's great. Yeah. And, and one, last, one last point on that. Um, it's very obvious when a company is lead gen focused because anytime you interact with them, there's some way to submit your email. Mm. Whether you're reading content, it, it's yeah. gated. It, it's very, very obvious when a company is lead gen focused. Mm. And that's where that, that over obsession with getting the email or whatever just bleeds through. You kind of feel it. No, that's good. Mm -hmm. So you guys at, um, at Refine Labs talk a ton about this thing called dark social. I've heard about it. 
I've, you know, read about it, but can you just elaborate on what is dark social? How does it play in marketing, demand gen and all of, uh, all of that? Can you just kind of elaborate for me? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard this story a lot because everyone at Refine Labs preach it, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's everything that's happening that we can't see, uh, on online communities. So all the way from, uh, and it, it doesn't necessarily just have to be online communities too. It can be one of my marketing friends texting me. So it's anything that we can't measure or directly see. That's LinkedIn DMs. That's texting a podcast to a friend. Mm. That's forwarding an email. Um, it's all these communications between people that we can't directly see. It's behind a privacy wall. Um, and so, of course, you can't measure that. Um, but it's the most impactful. Mm. I talked about word of mouth. This is a form of word of mouth. Me texting my friend, I consider that word of mouth. Mm -hmm. uh, me DMing my friend, that's word of mouth. Not necessarily actual mouth, it's figured, but it's <laughs> me telling text, someone, yeah. someone about something. Yeah. Word of text, there we go. Yeah, okay. Um, and I, I, before going down a uh, rabbit hole. What was the second question you had asked? Uh, well, I mean, you kind of talked about it just because you like, how does it play in marketing? And like, what can you do? Like, once you understand dark social, what do you change? What do you do that you didn't do prior to having this word or this category of kind of what it is dark social? Perfect. Yeah, how it, how it plays into marketing, of course, um, I'm referencing B2B, like, like I said, I can't talk on e-commerce or anything like that, although I, I'm sure the same principles apply. Um, this is how people communicate, make decisions, one of the primary ways and one of the most impactful ways. Um, and so we really need to understand that and realize it and accept it and accept that we can't measure it, but accept that we need to provide as much value as marketers to enable that. Mm -hmm. If I'm continuously providing the best possible value and it's resonating with people, they're most likely going to share that. Um, and so, uh, like I said, it's, it's the primary driver in uh, B2B buying today. It's how the world has changed. We have all these different avenues. It's not just Google search anymore or review sites. Um, and this is our most impactful tool. Mm, yeah. Yeah. What just pops into my mind, I don't know if you've read any of Christopher Lockhead's work on category design. I think he has a book called Play Bigger, but it's really just naming things. Like I think, you know, as you're explaining it, all these things have been named before word of mouth, uh, direct message. But you guys were maybe not the first, but you guys are, you know, pioneering this term and it just helps us think through it of like, oh, that's dark social. And then, you know, who, who's talking the most about it? And I think just a total sidebar, I think that's so critical in marketing is not just, you know, allowing things to slip by, but naming things, trying to really, you know, build categories, even within categories of kind of what you're doing rather than just saying, you know, word of mouth or DMs or all that, having a word. Um, and usually, you know, I think that comes from whether it's conversations or even customers, you know, you start to build these uh, words or languaging that then your people, when you're on sales calls or whatever, can start to understand, like, you don't have to go through all of the things you explained, you can just say dark social, they'll be like, Oh, I, you know, I've seen a post by Chris Walker, I've seen it. And I think that's so critical in marketing, and just business in general is naming things, um, but being good at it as well. Absolutely. 
Awesome. Yeah, that, that's a good point. This is this is nothing new. <laughs> we did not create anything new. This is uh-huh. what's been going on. But because we've built awareness around that term, we've given it a simple name that resonates with everyone. Yeah. Um, and honestly, that's half the battle. <laughs> that's kind of the story. I don't know if you've heard about the um, what's called in space the the dark hole. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we'll go with it. In, in space. Yeah, black hole. Okay, maybe? I'll tell you, I'll tell you the quick story. Black hole, I forget what it's called, but it's it's a, a term in space, something around galaxies, but originally scientists called it some very scientific <laughs> okay. name. And then they're like, oh, we're just gonna call it the black hole. And now us, everyone knows what a black hole is. Yeah. And maybe I'm botching the name and maybe this is a poor example, <laughs> but um, that is half the battle, of course, giving it an easily consumable name like dark social that uh, we built awareness around the, the term and now People can talk about it, yeah. um, and now we understand the impact of it and how buyers buy. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm that guy at the party that always jumps in to add his example after you just gave it. It's like I've had a horrible week, and then the guy's like, "I've I've had a bad week." But um, to your example about the black hole, another book by there's this like sleep book by Matthew something, and it's all about sleeping. And he tells a story of how airplane pilots would take naps. And they called it like protophylactic napping or something because it was a technical name. And then they're like, well, nobody's doing it. Like it isn't catching on. So how about we call it power naps? Because they looked at who are typical pilots and pilots are, you know, these, you know, in command, in control guys or gals. And it's like, we want to do power naps. We want to take this protolactic or whatever the name was. So just to back up your point that it is so important to name things because it's just, if it rolls off, if it's something we're proud of or whatever, we're more likely to say it. And that spreads word of mouth and in the sense, and that's a meta meta because it's talking about dark social spreading dark social, but uh, that's good. That's good. Okay. I have a segment at the end where I like to ask three questions. Two of them will be on marketing. One will be kind of not related to marketing. So the first question is what is one thing you've changed your mind on in regards to marketing and business in the last, you know, one, two, three, four years that you believe something and now today, and you might have talked about this, but just kind of answer it kind of like you didn't maybe if it is a topic already discussed. Yeah, yeah, this is is a really good one. Um, I talked about, uh, of course, my failures and that at that time I was reporting on revenue, but not executing on revenue. And to be completely vulnerable with you, the reason uh, what was going on in my head is I didn't believe I could actually affect revenue, mm. right? Like here's this big enterprise account that's, uh, let's, let's use mid-market. There's this mid-market account that um, we're trying to close or mid-market accounts. And I didn't believe I had the power as a marketer to actually influence mm that buyer and that buying committee. And that's one thing that's really changed in the past year or three years, excuse me, Um, especially with how the world of digital has evolved, we can absolutely impact revenue. Us as marketers solely. Now it is business and it is a team and sales is incredibly important and customer success is incredibly important and product is very, very important. Um, But that's, probably the biggest thing that I've changed my mind on that has really uh, impacted who I am as a marketer. And that's that's been a, a major thing with Refine Labs because that's what they have uh, really pushed. They've really pushed that 
that concept. Um, but I just want marketers to actually hold on mm -hmm. to that. Cause I think that's a big thing that's not talked about and well. I felt it. I'm sure there's a lot of marketers out there that don't feel it, but you can significantly impact revenue. Yeah. That's deep. Yeah, that's deep. Thank you for sharing that vulnerable kind of, yeah. I mean, obviously there's, there's surface level things that changed of how you maybe do marketing, uh, but it was all almost stemming from that big change in your mindset of, Hey, I actually can impact and the actions I take are, uh, can be revenue driving. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. My next question in regards to marketing and in business, if you could incept, have you watched a movie Inception? I have. Okay, so no. the whole premise is, is that these people can go into the minds of people and put an idea, plant it, and then the next day that person wakes up and it's their idea. They don't know that it got planted. So it'd be like sell my business or in the context of the movie. But if you could incept one idea in the minds of all the marketers in the world, all the kind of people that look like you, so the next day they wake up and they believe it. They think it's their own idea and they're running with it. All their actions derive from it. What is that kind of idea or mindset that you incept? Be artful and analytical. Mm -hmm. I touched on this a little earlier in the episode, but uh, a lot of things that I talked about you can't necessarily track. And so um, it may come across as I don't view data as important. I'm analytical heavy. Like data is super important. I'm all for collecting data, uh, but you have to be smart about how you use it. Um, and I just push marketers to not be 100% analytical. As we talked about, not every marketing effort has to be a winner. Um, so be artful in what you do, take risks, don't always play it safe, test a bunch of things, um, especially in B2B. Like, there is so much room to be creative and do things and everything in B2B seems so cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. Rigid. Case studies is a perfect example. Like every case study in B2B looks the same. Templates. talking about how some company increased some metric and mm -hmm. they're a big name and that's what it is. Um, and I had a LinkedIn post on this a few weeks ago. Airbnb has a great commercial. It's a case study. It doesn't sound like a case study. doesn't look like a case study, but it is a case study and it's super impactful. Mm. It's called the Bonnie and Clyde commercial if you want to look it up. Okay. Um, so especially in B2B, I really urge marketers to think out of the box, be artful, have fun, be passionate, be curious, and then also use your analytical brain as well. Hmm. Man, that'd be a good world if we woke up tomorrow and everybody was mm -hmm. strutting that uh, idea. That's a good one. Thank you, Miles, for that. All right, final question. What is one thing you do outside of business and marketing, so off the clock, that helps you when you come back to business and marketing? Ooh, this, is, this is a good one. So this, is, uh, this sounds cheesy. But I'm, uh, this is actually my passion. So um, work, I used to think this was cliche because I didn't work in marketing my entire career. Um, I actually love what I do and it doesn't feel like I go to work all day. And that's, I used to think that was a joke. Mm -hmm. I was like, no way. Uh, but I truly believe it. So what I do outside of work that really helps me come back into work, um, I read books, everything from marketing to finance to sales, because I want to put myself in other departments shoes and understand how they think. I think that's really important. As marketers, we can't just think we are 
the MVP, <laughs> we have to understand how other people in the organization think. Um, I constantly listen to podcasts, love podcasts when I'm going for a walk, driving in the car, constantly listening to podcasts. Um, so those are educational things that I'm doing outside of work all the time. Um, a lot of people think it's the grind. It's just what I love to do. This is my hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, but outside of educational and professional things, um, it's really good to take a break. I'm always going 100 miles per hour, reading stuff, listening to stuff. Um, so it's really good to pause. One of the biggest things for me is to go outside and spend time with my family. That really, that is my number one priority. That allows me to recharge, come back excited, mm-hmm. fresh. Um, and I really urge marketers to, or anybody, to not think the grind is the only way to success. Um, to be human, to care of yourself, uh, and that's really how you're going, going to, to win. Hmm, I like that. And I, I like your preface, preface, preface to, to the fact of just like, you know, this is what I love to do. And I think maybe I need to word that question better just because most of the people I talk to are akin to you that they just are passionate about what they do so much that it doesn't feel like work. But I found through reading a lot about ad writers, um, whether that whoever it is, they talk a lot about how, you know, your best ideas or the best things you're going to do on paper come when you're not by the paper, when you're walking, when you're pumping weights, when you're in the shower, when you're, you know, dancing even has been some answers. So I enjoy that you finally got to some of those of, you know, spending time with family because I read too, but a lot of the stuff I read is marketing business. But I think for me, um, akin to you, it's spending time with family, with my wife, with my, you know, parents, whatever that is, that then allows me to kind of like you said, going a hundred, you got to slow down to then go. It's like kind of slowing down to go faster rather than always, I never stop working and embodying that grind that you kind of pushed aside, right? Of like, it's what I love to do, but there is that grind mindset. If I work 15, 16, 17 hours a day, I don't take any breaks. Like I'm an animal and it's like, I just don't think that's a long-term strategy to succeed. Even when you're like you or I that love what we do, I find a lot of value in the offline stuff that brings me more focus to my work. So I, I, I enjoyed your answers and also your kind of content about the passion. Cause I think a lot of people, if you don't have that, go find it. Cause that's so critical to just working and living well as loving what you do. Totally. I love it. And what, one last point is I'm, I'm very passionate about this topic. You just talked about it. Um, you can work hard at 35, 40 hours a week. A lot of people think that to work hard, you have to work 60, 70 hours a week. And I think that's just an efficiency problem. Mm-hmm. I respect it. Yeah, that's a good way that's to put it. Great. I'm happy that you're working hard. That's and grinding. That is uh, uh, respect to you. you're chasing your dreams. But um, I think it also downplays the people that work hard at 40 hours a week and they're working hard and you can have <laughs> a very successful career and life at 40 hours a week. Yeah. You don't have to kill yourself. Yeah. And probably everybody um, around right. you, your children and stuff would be happy too if you didn't spend uh, 75 hours at work, but that's a topic for another episode. <laughs> so I like to just open this uh, up to kind of just anything you want to plug. I obviously will have your LinkedIn kind of in the show notes for people to go check out your LinkedIn, anything that you would want to link to, or just even at Refine Labs that you want to point people to in this point in this segment. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Refine Labs and Chris Walker, they're, they're great, great accounts to follow for education. Um, as for myself, you can, I'm on LinkedIn every day, but I, uh, 
I told you this earlier, Jordan, a lot of people have invested to, into me. And so one of my purposes in life is to give back. So I really urge people to, um, if you have any blockers or issues or anything you're experiencing in marketing or business specifically that you need help with, please reach out to me. I like love <laughs> meeting new people yeah. and helping them with issues they're having or problems. Um, that's just one of the forms that I like to one of the ways I like to give back. So um, yeah, I'd love to hear from some of you guys. Yeah, that's awesome. I definitely hope that one of the three to four podcast listeners that are still with us, check you out and reach out for you. You were, you know, heaven sent for just kind of accepting to do this. This podcast isn't out yet. And you know, I'm just some random person and you totally accepted to do it. So yeah, I'm not, you're not just saying it, you back that up and you really do want to help people. And that's a, an incredible driving force in your life. And I appreciate that, Miles, because I think that's why you're here. So I appreciate you uh, embodying that. And thank you again for coming on the show. And I hope uh, I hope you have a good rest of your Monday or whenever this drops. This was great. Thanks, Jordan. And this is the end of the podcast.